How should we as Christians ground our understanding of justice, especially in a world where there are so many voices and opinions on what justice is, what it looks like, and how it should be lived out? For the next several weeks, we're going to be interviewing some really great voices that are going to help us understand specific places where biblical justice is being lived out. But we want to just today get a biblical foundation for what is justice, how is God just to kind of form our thinking going forward. So we're going to listen to a sermon I preached a few months ago just on what is biblical justice. I'm Taylor. And I'm Brian. And this is the Echo Podcast. Where we are looking for truth in the noise. justly is to do what is right in God's eyes. It leads us to right relationships with God and others. In fact, in the Old Testament, the words for justice and righteousness were often interchangeable. God is a righteous God, a just God. In the book of Isaiah chapter 1, God says he's disgusted with their worship gatherings with the songs that they sing, with the offerings they give. Why would God be disgusted? He loves those things. He's disgusted because he says their hearts are full of injustice and he said their hands are covered in blood. So in Isaiah 117, it says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. A few pages later, he calls the people who had the power to change their systems, systems that fed off the poor and the fatherless and the mistreated. Justice has a personal flair and also an institutional one. In Micah 6, God again rebukes the people. They respond, okay, God, we get it. We're guilty, we sinned, but... But what, what do you want us to do about it? Like, you want us to give the greatest offering ever? Or maybe you want us to give our firstborn children? I'm sure the firstborn children were like, uh, Mom, Dad, can you maybe take that one off the table? But God says, no, 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 I don't want you to do that. Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Sometimes a church may stay in the stream of it's all about your walk with God. Or maybe it's the root of of mercy and acts of mercy. Or maybe it's all about just justice. But we see all of these are part of being rooted in God. Justice, mercy, our humble walk with God. I have a preacher buddy who lives not far from here and he's preached God's word faithfully for a number of years. And uh, he is doctrinally sound and a great student of the Bible. And so imagine his surprise when just this last year, a few months ago, he was preaching from Micah 6.8. And a church member rebuked him afterwards and said, how dare you preach a sermon about justice? You must be one of those Marxists. And you're laughing. But I hear this story every single week right now. Preachers who are being rebuked for saying the word justice. The reason is justice has become a political flashpoint, just that word. 
But here at Highland Park, one of the things we've said over and over is that God's kingdom has to transcend our political kingdoms and also inform our political choices. God's kingdom is above all of that. So we aren't going to back away from one of the core teachings of the Bible because the word has been used and sometimes misused politically. Just because some who have used the term have done so in unbiblical ways, we're not going to back away. Just because some who have launched accusations against anybody who uses the word justice, we're not going to back away from that either. To teach all of God's word means that we don't ignore the vast sections of the Bible that talk about God's heart for justice, even when it's politically tumultuous at this time. To pursue justice is to pursue what is right in God's eyes. It's not paralyzed by defensiveness or blame. In fact, if your first instincts when you hear the word are defensiveness or blame, you may need to check what's causing that. But instead, we remember the lesson of last week that we invite God to change us. And so perhaps in these moments and in the days to come, God can do a work in our heart so that when we hear the word justice, we won't first think of some political thing that we like or don't like, but instead we'll think of God's very heart for people who need love. Jesus tells us to speak the truth in love, and it's been my prayer that my words today would be truthful, so truthful that they might even offend somebody, but so loving that you would know that I would die for anyone who's hearing them. The truth in love is what God calls us to preach, and I'm thankful to be part of a church family that says, yes, we're on board with that. Jamar Tisby, in his fantastic uh, new book called How to Fight Racism, if you're looking for like a simple little guide, I'd start you with this one. Uh, he, he shares this template for pursuing justice, and it, he calls it the arc of justice. It's this, awareness, relationships, commitment. And if you take that template for pursuing justice, it works everywhere. Like you want to think about helping those who are in hunger, uh, helping the immigrant, helping the person who's grieving, the person with mental health crisis, the person in a crisis pregnancy situation. All of those kind of things, you can think awareness, relationship, commitment. But today specifically, as we've studied this past week, I want to lay that template just down on top of the issue of racial justice and with the text of James chapter 1 and 2. So if you want to have your Bibles open, go and turn there. We'll get there in just a moment. We reject the modern idea of race. And it really is kind of a modern idea. This idea that we are fundamentally different as human beings. We reject that because the Bible rejects it. And oh, by the way, so does science and so does good study of history. I got to teach our students about this a few days ago, and I had a, a big stack of 500 papers, and I said, imagine if every one of these was written with small little code, and that's your DNA. Do you know how many of these pieces of paper represent the stuff that we identify with race, like, like skin color or hair type? One of those 517 pieces of paper would represent the stuff in your DNA that we see. Everything else isn't stuff that you would see. And yet, in our world, what do we often see first and make a big deal about? The stuff that's only one of 527, uh, uh, 27th of our DNA. So the Bible and science and history reject this modern construct of race. But just because we reject it 
does not mean that we don't acknowledge that it really does impact the lives of people because of how human beings judge one another. At its core, racism is about power, one group exerting dominance over the other at the expense of the other. We know a lot about slavery. Hopefully we've read and studied there. I've been reading more about the late 1800s and early 1900s when, we, when the United States passed a series of laws, especially in the South, called Jim Crow laws. And they were passed to undermine people of color. Schools were segregated, so were bathrooms and buses. In Oklahoma, phone booths were segregated. In courtrooms, oftentimes, there would be one Bible for white people to swear in on and one Bible for black people to swear in. Couldn't even swear in on the same Bible. And so on a rainy day in 1943, Rosa Parks hopped onto a bus and ready to head to work. She did as she was told she had to do, which was to pay her fare and go sit in the back of the bus, what was labeled the colored section. She did that. But the bus driver was feeling a little cantankerous that day and told her, uh, I'm going to need you to get off the bus and walk around and enter the back. I don't want you walking down the aisle past the white people. And so she did. She got off the bus in the rain, and when she did, the bus driver took off, leaving her in the rain, him taking her money. That wasn't unusual. It's just the way it happened all the time. All the time. Twelve years later, 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till was uh, going down to visit some family. And he was horrifically kidnapped, tortured, murdered, and his body dumped into a river by two men who claimed that he said an offensive word to a woman in a grocery store. Both of these men were found not guilty. The trial was a complete sham. The, the witnesses who heard the boy's cries and saw what had happened were also thrown in jail so they could not testify in the trial. All of that was the backdrop. That All of that was in her mind the day in 1955 that Rosa Parks got on a bus once again, this time to go home from a long shift at work. And she got on the bus, she paid her fare, she sat where she was supposed to in the colored section. But then as they stopped, uh, a couple stops later, a lot of white folks got on the bus, and the rule was that if white folks got on the bus, the black folks had to move farther back, or they had to stand, or they had to get off the bus, and they couldn't even get their money back. And she was told, you, you gotta move, you gotta go, because this seat we're gonna to give to the white folks who came on. And thinking about Emmett Till, thinking about the injustices she had suffered from a little child seeing the school bus go by, Rosa Parks finally said, no. And so they arrested her. One of the tragedies of the story of Rosa Parks is that she should have never had to do it. Where was the Christian white person to get on that bus and say, nope, she can sit here? Because that's what the Bible would have us do. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to read from James chapter 1 and James chapter 2. And actually, if you want to look on the screen with me, we're going to do what we did last week. Uh, I'm going to have you read the sections that are in yellow along with me. And we're going to uh, skip just one or two verses, but kind of go in chapter 1 and parts of chapter 2. So if you can do this. By the way, if you're watching at home, do this as well. As you know, Dave set up technology so we can see you sitting in your living room. So you've got to do this as well. I'm kidding for the paranoid. Um, okay, here we go. 
religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? When you think about your Christian faith, do you think about what you believe or what you do? Because James is saying, think about both. We aren't saved by what we do. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But James reminds us that we aren't saved by grace through faith with this faith that's shallow and empty and does nothing. He says, this is a faith that has action to it. This is a faith that changes your lives. Because if we believe that God created all people in the image of God, then we must treat people that way. Our faith must have an action to it. And yet we have this problem of racial strife in our country. We realize that we're drawing near to the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, where a large swath of Tulsa was burned and destroyed its churches, theaters, businesses, homes, and many of its people. And today, if you walk through Greenwood, you'll see an interstate that divides it in half. You'll think about how it was called a riot up until a few years ago. And the reason it was called a riot was so that those who lost everything could not claim the insurance and be funded back insurance money for their destroyed homes and businesses. We read the stats that the average black household today in 2021 has only one-tenth of the wealth of the average white household. And the implications that that has for education, for security, for healthcare. And if you live north of Admiral, three miles that way, your life expectancy drops by 12 years. This is injustice. And I'm not saying that you have to blame yourself. That the idea of like white guilt is not healthy or based in the gospel. The idea that we need to point our fingers at everybody and blame everybody. The idea that there's simple solutions. I'm not saying any of that. I am saying this. As Christians, we should care. We should care. Instead of defensiveness, instead of, but what about, or what about this, our first instinct should be to care. And all of this can feel so overwhelming. And that's why this arc of justice, I think, can help us as a church family. The arc, awareness, relationships, commitment. Let's talk for a few moments about each one of those. Awareness. Think about the Old Testament prophets 
and Jesus and their awareness. Awareness that Samaritans were treated outcast. Awareness of how the sick were blamed for their diseases because of supposed sins. Awareness of how the religious mistreated others and kept them from the temple courts. Awareness of how court systems were cheating the poor. Awareness of how landowners were not allowing the foreigners to come through to survive starvation as they traveled through. And in James, awareness that people were having gatherings and meetings and they were mistreating the poor, those who weren't dressed a certain way, realizing that uh, that damaged the human soul. Now, you can't be fully aware of every issue. There's lots of issues that pertain to injustice. But we can grow a little bit. And one of the number one things that when people say, hey, Brian, can we talk about race? I have some questions about race. Or I have some frustrations about even talking about this. One of the things I often hear is, I just don't get it. I don't understand why they feel this way. That's the question. And I, and I want to just ask this to all of us. Have you given a good faith effort in understanding? I mean a really good faith effort in understanding why many people are saying, I am hurt. I am hurting. I'm wounded. This has happened and this has happened and this has happened. Now, there's a lot of resources that talk about justice. And some of them I would turn you away from because they come from a place that's not biblically formed or biblically uh, desires reconciliation. But there are a gob of great resources from brothers and sisters in Christ whom you would sit down and read your Bible cover to cover with and nod your head in agreement as you read through the scripture. And you would nod your head in agreement as you talked about family and work and life and all of these things. And, and when they write these books, we need to realize these are our friends and co-laborers in the kingdom. And so we've made a, a full list, uh, and I even kind of labeled it, if you're just getting started or if you want to dig a little bit deeper and put some resources that you can find online. And uh, if you're watching online, those are in the notes section. If you're here with us, you can go to hptulsa.com and look on the media. And under this sermon, we'll have that whole list that you can find podcasts, videos, books, resources, things like that. Because we want everyone to give a good faith effort to at least understanding when someone says, I'm hurting. There's lots of great resources. A, awareness, R, relationships. It's one thing to have head knowledge. It's a whole nother thing to hear someone tell you their story, right? Suddenly, it's not just our head connected. It's our heart connected. And those two things go together. We become more aware the more we have friendships of people who say, this happened to me. I remember a couple months ago, I was talking to a few dear friends who uh, served in our military overseas and they were so proud when they came home. They were proud uh, when they had their uniform on and they remembered their first bus ride when they were back here. They remembered thinking how things would be different now, how they might be treated with respect now. And they both told the same story in different places of getting on the bus in their uniform, years of serving overseas, risking their life for their country and getting on the bus and being told, boy, your place is in the back. And those words still haunt them decades later because all of those hopes that they had were crushed in that moment that things would be different, that they had proven their worth, that they were redeemable, 
and worth something of value here. When you hear stories like that, it changes you. It has to change you. I have to think maybe if uh, the person who was hosting this party from the book of James would have really engaged with the stories of the poor who were there, maybe they would have had the kindness to allow them to sit in one of the places of honor. Maybe if it was their own mother who came in dressed poorly because some bad things had happened to her, they would have had this relationship and they surely wouldn't have made her sit at the end on the floor. When we know people, it changes us. So we need to build these relationships with people. And we don't build relationships just to learn about justice. We build relationships to be good friends to people, to love them and to care for them and to support And one of the great rewards is that we get to learn a lot too. Awareness, relationships, commitment, the C of the ark. The book of James says, knowing isn't enough. You gotta do something or your faith doesn't really mean anything. You can't change the world today, but you can do something to change the world. I've been thinking a lot about justice on a micro level. It's easy to to think about on a macro level. It's really complicated, and we need to think about it in some ways, but also just on a micro level. For instance, if the average black household only has one-tenth of the average white household, would it not be just for a few of those white households who have the availability uh, economically to befriend a family that does not have any college savings for their kids through no fault of their own. And even if it is some person's fault on some level, we all have some fault at some level, but because a system was stacked against them for generations and they were not able to accumulate family wealth for for whatever reason, would it not be a small act of justice to think, maybe I shouldn't only set aside college savings just for my kids. Maybe I should do something for some other kids too. Small acts of justice. I believe that the Bible calls us to consider these things. I don't know how we figure them all out. They're complicated. They're messy. They're nuanced. They're difficult. We'll probably, you know, take some wrong turns. But think about on a micro level, how can you practice biblical justice and care for people? And it may be someone who's of a different ethnic background, or it may just be somebody from a different life experience who needs your help. Maybe it's both, but we care about these things. We think about Zacchaeus and his commitment. Zacchaeus, the cheating tax collector, and he climbs up on a tree to see Jesus, and Jesus comes by, and Jesus did not accuse him first. So if you're feeling some guilt right now, know that if Jesus saw you up in the tree, his first words to you come with grace. And he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. Can, I, can we have a dinner party at your house tonight? Zacchaeus says, sure. Jesus shows up. A lot of the the religious people don't like it. But Jesus is there with Zacchaeus and his friends and Zacchaeus finds salvation. And you know what Zacchaeus does before the night's over? He says, I'm gonna pay back everybody I cheated, even with a whole bunch of interest on top. I'm gonna do what is just because the gospel demands it, because the gospel saved my life. Giving back money to the poor, that didn't save Zacchaeus. But salvation in his life meant that he was gonna give back to the poor, the people he had cheated, the people that he had ripped off. That's the commitment we're talking about. Justice efforts are an implication of the gospel. One of the things I get asked sometimes is, 
Should we not just preach the gospel and not talk about all that justice stuff? Like Zacchaeus, if you said that to him, he'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, the, the gospel is the good news of Jesus. That saved me. But because I'm saved and I see the way that God wants me to walk, I'm going to care about justice and doing the right thing for people, especially people for himself that he had wronged. He'd made their lives miserable. 381 days. 381 days of commitment. That's how long the Montgomery, uh, or that's how long the bus boycott had to last before the Supreme Court made the change. 381 days. The, the bus boycott started the night that Rosa Parks was arrested. They got together in a church that night and they said, this is not right. We need to do something where the city leaders feel it a little bit in the pocketbooks because they're exploiting us. 75% of the people who rode the buses were black and yet they're exploiting us. They won't hire one of us to drive a bus and they make us sit in the back and they cheat us of our money and they treat us like dogs. So let's just not ride the buses. Okay, maybe that, maybe that will work. So they began that night. Some people had to walk up to 20 miles a day to get to work and back, but they kept their commitment. We're not gonna ride the buses. We're not gonna ride the buses. We're gonna get this thing to the courts. And finally they did, and the Supreme Court upheld it. And after 381 days, the bus companies were not allowed uh, to segregate anymore. And they had to hire some black uh, members uh, of, their, of their town to work there. That's a lot of commitment. By the way, the rest of the story doesn't go so great because snipers begin firing into the buses, injuring a pregnant woman a couple days later. A teenage black girl was beaten as she got off the bus. A white preacher who had joined the boycott, his house got bombed. Commitment isn't easy, but it's worth it to do what is just in God's eyes. James Baldwin observed, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it is faced. When we think about this problem of race, it is complex. But if we don't face it, we won't change it. Highland Park is committed to biblical reconciliation. We recognize that there are parties involved in racial justice who don't share our values. And there are also parties fighting against racial justice, and they certainly don't share our values either. Since the spring murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey, there's been a massive push towards racial justice. You've seen this on the news. And some of those efforts have been biblically informed with hopes of reconciliation, and some have not been. There's also been a massive backlash against churches preaching against racial justice because they get lumped in with the people who are not biblically informed. If you do anything today, at least support our friends who are preaching a biblical version of justice. And please don't lump them in with the people who are not preaching a biblical form of justice because that's what happens and is happening to so many of my preaching buddies. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died and he rose again and he calls us to follow him in a kingdom greater than the kingdoms of this world. And he calls us to be this family called out of where we were to identify with this family higher and more unified than any other affiliation that we have so that we can love our neighbors well and make disciples of all nations. So if we are to be a called out people, a family, we have to care about this issue 
any issue that divides us from anyone else. It is the gospel that drives our justice efforts. Feeding the hungry over the 220 center is a justice effort, and it's the gospel that drives that. The grief share class that Dave is leading right now on Wednesday nights, the gospel drives that. Counseling efforts and helping people in mental, with mental health issues or, or depression and struggles, that's a gospel-informed justice issue. Helping boys rescued out of trafficking with black box. That's a gospel-driven, gospel-informed justice issue. And one day, we're going to celebrate. We're not going to celebrate because finally we're colorblind. We're going to celebrate because we're fully celebrating the colorful gathering of all nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation in the presence of God. And until that day, we'll pray and we'll labor to help the church be now what we will one day be in completion, in unity. We all need grace here. We need God's grace. When G.K. Chesterton was asked, what's the problem with the world? He said, the problem, my good brother, is me. We all need grace. We've all fallen short. And especially when it comes to this issue of racial justice, we need to be quick to give grace to others. No, no effort at reconciliation will get anywhere without God's grace involved, without biblical grace involved. We need to be quick to give it and quick to receive it. To act justly is to do what is right in God's eyes. All the way back in Isaiah 1, even after this rebuke, God says these words that get my attention. He says, come now, let's settle the matter. Yikes. When the God of the universe says, let's settle the matter. You and me, Jan, let's settle up right now. I'm nervous. But God's next words are, I'll take your sins that are ugly as can be, and I'll make you as pure as snow. In, in the moment when God says, let's settle up, and we're thinking of all of the sins of our heart, all of the ways that we've mistreated or haven't stood up for someone or have missed the mark, all of those things, and God says, let's settle up, and he says, forgiveness, grace. It's what I offer to you. And I want to tell you, whether you're here in person or watching at home or wherever you are, God comes to you in grace. He says, let's settle up. Let's settle up with grace that Jesus Christ would die for our sins and all of the ugliness of mankind. The fact that Jesus knew of the way that we would treat one another on this planet and yet he died for us blows my mind. And yet he did. Well, that's the first time that we've had a sermon on the podcast, but I think it's important for us to make sure that we all understand the biblical groundwork of justice and how it's rooted in the character of God. Yeah, and join us the next two weeks. Week one, we'll be interviewing my good friend, Laron West, who pastors at Gilcrease Hills Baptist Church in Tulsa and has a lot of experience uh, with 
racism coming from North Tulsa and all that's happened there. And then week two, uh, Carolyn Schrage from Joplin, Missouri and Life Choices Medical, uh, which helps uh, women dealing with crisis pregnancies or coming out of trafficking or abuse situations. And oh my goodness, are these two interviews incredible. Uh, fa fantastic, very convicting, but also very comforting. Yeah, and also just practically helpful. So don't miss the next two weeks. I'm Taylor. And I'm Brian. And this is The Echo Podcast. Where we are looking for truth in the noise.